I consider everything in my life to be work now, because especially because I do this podcast with you two. Uh, spying on other people in shops is work. <laughs> yeah. User error 59. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. I'm Dan. And we're back. And I've got nothing to say up front, so we should just get straight into it. So let's start with a hashtag ask error. What is the best decade for music? Now, this came from a Twitter poll that I did. And it was, I think I did 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, because all other decades don't count. But I don't know, are you going to say 50s, Popey? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the hair for it. I'm not that old. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. No. The obvious answer for this is whatever music was popular when you were around about 20 years old and had a disposable income and listened to music. And so for me, that would have been the 90s. Well, you are wrong. Dan, what do you think? I don't know. I kind of feel like that the answer is whatever the oldest thing is in your poll because of selection bias. So you're just going to get only the hits from whatever longest decade ago or what you're going to remember. And you're only going to remember the trash from right now because that's what you're hearing all the time. That's a very long way of saying the 1970s were clearly the best. What? <laughs> I thought you said you did 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, but no one actually remembers the 60s. So the answer is clearly the 70s that's when all of the like the 60s set it up well i suppose you could go back as far as you like but the 50s kind of that's when rock and roll happened but it was still a bit basic then the 60s progressed it a fair bit but it wasn't really until the end of the 60s when it got really good and then the 70s is when it really matured and you had just all of the foundation the, the true foundation for modern music really where be it r&b or rock or funk or whatever yeah, but, you know, I think the actual best decade for music is like 10 to 20 years from now. Because things are always evolving. Things are always coming out. We're having new genres emerge. There's so much music and you can access the entire sum collection of all music recorded ever. And there's new instruments being invented and new techniques and mashups and remixes. And I don't see how the best time for music isn't always in the future. See, I... I maybe misinterpreted your question what you seem to be arguing is that the best decade like objectively for technical excellence of music whereas i was thinking from the point of view of what do i like listening to and i still like listening to a load of songs from the 90s my car is full of cds of music from the 90s and i and i don't ever actively choose to listen to anything from the 60s or 70s unless i'm at a party where it's like a 70s party or um i feel in the mood for a bit of disco so my my perception is more what would i listen to not what's technically better i listen to almost exclusively 70s and 80s so i don't know maybe i'm just a musical snob but i just think that anything after that, the 90s was pretty terrible, really. There was some good stuff. There's good stuff in every decade. There's good stuff now. You just don't generally hear about it in pop culture because it's all just that generic, terrible, terrible shite that is, like, popular. Whereas at least the stuff in the 70s that was popular was actually quite good. But that's exactly the same as, like, my parents would have said 30 years ago and probably grandparents would have said... 60 years ago is oh the music now is rubbish it was better 30 years ago kids these days no i'm not having it my parents when they were my age when i was a little kid liked the music of the time late bowie and stuff no 
This is the arrogance of youth thinking that, that whatever you're doing right now is better than everyone did before and nobody can possibly better it. And it's pretty clear. Okay, let's talk about Risk Five. Now, there's a lot of hype about Risk Five being this modern but also open instruction set architecture. And it seems to be the great hope because we all in the Linux world ideally would run completely open source free software on everything. Most of us are pragmatic enough to actually not do that and run the things that we need to get the job done. But I like to think that everyone would choose to use open source and free software if they could. And that does extend down to the hardware as well. We know that x86 chips have basically got their own operating system that is just a black box on it. And so RISC-V is very attractive to me, but is all this hype justified is the question. Surely the pragmatism is it exists being like the first part. Like, is it possible for me to buy um, a fully open machine that I can do my job on? No. So therefore, the pragmatist in me says, well, in order to do my job, I need to buy hardware that physically exists in the world. And those things don't exist yet. So no, I'm not going to buy them. Yes, it might be nice to have a fully free stack all the way from the chips at the bottom and the designs of the chips at the bottom and the designs of the boards, all the way up to every piece of software that you run. But today, that's not possible. So while you could make parts of it freer with the software stack. You could put Triscoll on your machine, for example. Then you make compromises because your wireless doesn't work or you don't get very good GPU acceleration or whatever. Um, and the same thing happens on the hardware. You could go out and buy one of these RISC-V um, prototype boards, but you're not going to be able to read your email on it with, you know, images in line in the, in it. you could use MUT maybe in a command line, which might be appealing to some people. And I myself enjoy that, but you're not going to be able to use like modern applications on it right now today. That's not actually true. I saw some photos from FOSDEM of a RISC-V board running graphical applications. How smoothly they would run, I don't know. But you can, at least in theory, get something like Thunderbird or maybe something a bit lighter than Thunderbird yes. to get a graphical email application and a web browser. I went to FOSDEM and saw that very same board that wasn't working when I walked up to the, the stand <laughs> ah. and asked for a demo of said board, which was not in a case, and it was all sprawled out all over the place, like 15 Raspberry Pis all hooked up together. So no, it's not practical right now today. Yes, it might be nice in the future, but it's just not a thing now. It's like flying cars. Yes, that would be lovely. Do they exist? No. Move on. I think probably where RISC-V is most useful right now is competing with ARM devices or replacing those little uh, processing tasks that aren't things we think about normally. Like uh, something I saw was that uh, hard drive manufacturers are looking to replace the controllers on SSDs with RISC-V processors or uh, co-processing units that specialize in things like machine learning. Something like um, the Apple T2 chip that was introduced that handles like encryption. Uh, something like that could be done by a manufacturer like System76 using uh, RISC-V uh, as an open uh, co-processing unit, not necessarily replacing your actual processor. I think it could be um, 
something that we're looking more at in routers and Internet of Things devices and all these little processors that we have all over the place around us that aren't necessarily like computers as we think of them. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Companion devices or companion processors or bridges or interfaces in some way. I could I could totally buy that and I can totally buy uh, these companies who will manufacture a bespoke device given your open design based on you know, a bunch of building blocks you put together. Totally get that. But no, not a desktop PC. But surely you have to start somewhere. And it's not that mature. It's only a few years old relative to the... How old is x86? I mean, that must be... Well, no, the RISC-V spec is quite old. It's only recently that people have started um, really making viable systems out of machines that can form to that spec but the spec has been around for a fair while um i think i think what you've fallen into the trap of is seeing the hype from one specific company that has been built up and shown by a bunch of quite popular tech people online i think if that one company sci-5 i think it's called hadn't sponsored linus tech tips and hadn't been featured on level one techs and a couple of other places nobody would be talking about risk five right now well i've been talking about it on podcasts for longer than they've been sponsoring the likes of linus tech tips but yeah i think you're right that the hype wouldn't be there if sci-fi hadn't like really pushed it but i guess does it need to compete with or replace x86 for it to be something that is important and viable and even a huge market player like I think ARM processors kind of came out of nowhere and took over the world, right? I mean, they're everywhere. So could could something like RISC-V still be a super relevant thing and power tons of consumer electronics and be important and relevant without having to replace like the PC? I'm not sure ARM could be said to have come out of nowhere. Um, they <laughs> The first ARM CPUs were what? In the BBC Micro back in 1980 six something like that maybe yeah but in terms of consumer electronics uh sure it's now got to the scale where they can manufacture lots and lots and lots of them and they're fast enough that you can do consumer things with them now uh but arm devices have been around for many years um it's just now that they're in consumer hands like everyone's hand because of this revolution of smartphones totally but yeah i i, I agree with you dan that i think Risk Five has a place, and it will slowly build up in the same way that ARM did. I think we are just some way off that. Things will be faster now because we've gone through the whole process with ARM, and I think Risk Five will make different decisions. But I don't think it will accelerate dramatically. I think it was. I think a desktop PC running Risk Five is still five to ten years off. Well, what about this Raspberry Pi that's supposedly coming with Risk Five? We don't know when or if that's actually going to happen, but let's say it happens within a year or two. That would really push the market forward, potentially. Yeah, and I did find the talk at FOSDEM, um, which was all about the state of RISC-V and Debian specifically on RISC-V. I found that super fascinating. I'm a little bit of a processor nerd in that I follow it. I'm not you know, deeply technical, but it was I, I could follow along with the, the the content of the talk and it was fascinating to learn about bootstrapping an operating system and if the raspberry pi foundation with their involvement could accelerate that and maybe have a board out soon i'm not optimistic it will be within a year a functioning board within a year it might be a prototype but soon it would be nice to be able to have a board that's fully open running a fully open operating system yeah that'd be great 
I could see one of these companies like Apple, who is super interested in vertical integration and creating more custom silicon, replacing chips or creating more co-processing units and maybe going this way to avoid the ARM licensing and having the ultimate control over their hardware stack. Well, that's what it really boils down to, money. We talk about this being open and free as in freedom, but the reality is that manufacturers looking to make cheap IoT devices, it's attractive to them because it's free as in beer and they're not having to pay the likes of ARM. And ultimately, the market and you know capitalism may end up driving it forward and we might end up with the sort of side benefit that it's also open and free as we know it. So Dan, you asked us about tracking data with your phone and your watch and how much of that we do and what we do with that data. And it kind of ties in with a conversation I was having with Chris a while back about how we've got all this data about our own habits, sleep apps, uh, pedometers, you know, heart rate monitors and all the rest of that. But how much of that data is actually useful and is collecting it just more hoarding of data and more device addiction, just getting us more and more addicted to them? So you are pretty into this stuff, aren't you? So um, I think that since I got an Apple Watch, I've been digging a lot more into it because I have so much more health data now. But uh, I also have been using screen time on uh, my iPhone. And I think that it is like kind of a weird thing where you're, where's the line between this is actually helping me um, be more intelligent about how I spend my time and like now I just spend my time pouring over data. Yeah, you're just spending more time with the phone effectively than if you didn't bother tracking that in the first place. Right. So I think that, um, you know, so far in my personal usage of screen time, that it's actually been really helpful. Um, so I set up uh, an app limit um, by category. So I only allow myself an hour of social media apps a day. And um, I actually have only ever hit the limit once, which I think is probably a good indicator of where my usage is already. But um, my usage of the phone overall, uh, since I started using screen time, has gone down quite a lot because I think I'm more aware of when I'm picking up my phone and touching it and there's some sort of gamification about it where I'm thinking like, oh man, like, am I really using my phone for something important or is this going to affect my screen time? So it's actually working for you then. That's good. I don't think it would work for me. I sort of don't do it is the bottom line because I don't want to know quite how often I look at Twitter and how much time every day I spend doing that. It just, I don't know, it seems scary to me. Is it something you've ever done, Popey? Not really. I've never timed, I've not, not really looked at how much time. And my, my phone doesn't have the feature to do what, what Dan's suggesting that I'm aware of. I also have a smartwatch, but one from the past, uh, Pebble, which can track my sleep and stuff like that and gives me little uh, motivational messages to remind me that I had plenty of sleep last night and it can wake me in a graceful way, not necessarily by an alarm, but you know, just vibrating my hand at a time when it thinks I've had enough sleep. But um, <laughs> thankfully, my wife's alarm clock fixed that for me. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need that feature. As for... What I would do with that information, I, I'm not sure because, like, even if the phone told me I spend an hour on Twitter, 
what would I do with that data? Because I know I spend time on Twitter. It's my job. I, like part of my job is to create social media posts for the company I work for. And so, um, as part of my paid job, I'm going to be on Twitter, not on my phone most of the time, but on my desktop PC where it's not tracked. And I have no idea how long I spend on Twitter. I mean, I can, I can certainly pigeonhole parts of my day and we certainly do set aside times of the day to do social media posts and, you know, a certain part of the day for dealing with email and having meetings and stuff like that. But if, if you take work out of the equation and I'm only thinking about my personal life, I don't know how it would help me. Like while I'm standing there cooking bacon and waiting for the kettle to boil. So what if I sit and scroll through Twitter? What the hell else am I going to do with that time? It's not like I could solve quadratic equations while I'm cooking bacon and making the tea. And that would be more beneficial to humanity in any way. I, I don't understand fully how this helps me. Well, you would live longer if you didn't scroll through Twitter while you were making bacon and waiting for the kettle to boil? Well, that's patently not true, because that may well be an average for certain people of a certain type with, you know, certain age in a certain place. I don't buy those average stats as you will lose so many days of your life for every minute you spend on Twitter. I just don't buy that because they're average. No, I'm not talking about chronological life i'm talking from a philosophical point of view right because as you know better than any of us here as you get older time seems to speed up right and so you if you think back to when you were 30 or whatever that seems like yesterday whereas when you were 30 looking back to 20 seems like a bit further away and you know because the more time you have relatively it seems this is not rocket science joe every year that passes is a, is a smaller and smaller proportion of your life this is just normal maths right right exactly that's a very good way to say it thank you and so there's this theory that goes if you are staring at your phone occupied by Twitter, even if it's silly things or whatever, if you're not bored, if you're not experiencing the world, you're sort of detached from it, then time just goes really, really quickly. And therefore, if when you're making bacon, you just stare out of the window and see a squirrel going along or whatever, that makes you perceive that time more slowly. And therefore, you actually remember more of your life. And therefore, you feel like you've lived longer. Whereas if your head is constantly buried in a phone or looking at a computer screen and you just you wake up, you're busy, you go to sleep, then time goes really, really quickly and you don't actually experience the world. Okay, so while I'm cooking bacon and making tea and stuff is, uh, stuff is happening around me, whether it's motes of dust flying in the, in the air as the sunlight comes through the kitchen window, and I could watch those little dust bunnies float around in the kitchen, and I could think about how pointless my life is, or I could sit and scroll through Twitter and see some funny pictures of cats. Like, I, I don't see how that makes such a significant difference to my life, given it's just a few minutes while I'm making bacon. I think the thing is, it's like, what is your goal, right? What do you want to use the data for? And if if you don't really care about um, the amount of time that you spend doing these things and you feel like that's what makes you happy and you don't have anything better to do, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that. For me personally, it's more about 
using that time to spend connected to other people that are actually physically near me instead of spending that time connected to things that are kind of trivial or useless. Yeah, I, I can buy that. I can buy that if I, if I was sat in a bar with all my friends with me, um, I don't think I would be sat there scrolling through Twitter because the point of being in the bar is not just being out of the house. It's to socialize with my friends. But there are points in the day, whether it's while you're on the toilet having a shit or while you're making bacon, that you're not usefully doing anything else. There's only so much multiplexing the human, a human person can do. Like I've said before, when I boil the kettle at, uh, when I have a break at home and I boil the kettle for a cup of tea, I'll often empty the dishwasher at the same time. And I'll set myself a little goal of trying to empty the dishwasher while I'm doing making a cup of tea, just so I can multiplex. Now, obviously, I'm not going to sit and look at Twitter at the same time, but I might listen to a podcast at the same time. And I'm achieving three life goals there. All at the same time, I'm consuming some content. I'm <laughs> executing uh, the cleanliness function of my house while refreshing my my own body with a new cup of tea. And so for you, the data about that wouldn't be particularly useful then? I just don't think it would give me that much value. Like telling me how, like how, how many hours I spend on Twitter. I mean, we focused on that being the thing. It would probably be more useful to me if I was like focused, if I was doing a weight loss thing to try and focus on, you know, the food I'm eating or the, um, you know, the, the number of calories or the amount of fat or the, the amount of carbohydrates or the number of steps I'm doing or how many stairs I'm climbing or something like those kind of things, health type things yeah i can see value in those but i'm not of the uh mindset that staring at a screen is necessarily a bad thing and i and i feel a lot of people project onto other people i was um standing in a playground waiting for my son to come out of school and i happened to have my phone open because i was answering a question from a colleague at work because i go out and do the school run during the working day and I was answering a question from a colleague and one of the mums shot a snide comment at me about, oh, head down in your phone, like as if I was like wasting my life away. I was doing my job. I was replying to someone at work. And I just think this, this mentality that people have that the other person is staring at a screen, therefore they're wasting their life away, is projection. And I think people are actually more concerned about what they're doing themselves, and they're just projecting onto other people. I think that is something that um, I've also struggled with, is communicating to other people that sometimes, because of the nature of my work, and because I work with people that are in different time zones, um, that I can be on my phone interacting with someone in a different time zone doing work on like hours that aren't normal work hours and people think you're just kind of putzing around and it isn't the case at all. Right. I can't exactly say to her, fuck off. I'm doing my job. I'm not playing candy crush. Like <laughs> you, you, you can't, you can't say that to someone. You just go, huh? Like, and you shrug it off. But actually it kind of irritated me because, you know, I feel that that's something a lot of people do. They feel, well, you know, I'm sitting here playing a word game. I bet that guy's sitting there playing a word game or maybe not. Like I was sat on a plane uh, recently where I, there was a Wi-Fi connection and I spent most of the flight on my phone on Wi-Fi because a member of family was ill and I was trying to get updates from the hospital 
whilst I'm 35,000 feet in the air. Now, someone stood next to or sat next to me on the plane might have thought, geez, this dick has been sat on his phone the whole flight. And it's like, yeah, none of your business. Stop trying to project what you think I'm doing with my phone when it doesn't relate to what I'm actually doing with my phone. Okay, another hashtag ask error, and this one comes from the forum at community.error.show. Do go there and check it out. And this is pain for principles, where's your threshold? And it essentially boils down to how much pain, and that can be convenience, you know, financial, emotional, that sort of thing, are you willing to put up with if it means standing up for something, whether that's at work or I suppose you could say with free software and stuff, that's a prime example, really. So, you know, where is that line? How much are you willing to put up with to get things the way you want them to be? For me personally, I'd say quite a lot. I think uh, I'm probably pretty notoriously stubborn and insubordinate. If I really, really believe something, then uh, I, I'm usually willing to to kind of stick through like, nope, this is this is a this is the right thing to do. And uh you know, whatever gets thrown at me, I'll, I'll still just stand there. I don't know if that makes me an asshole or, or what, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly makes you not a pushover, which is good. But I don't know, when it comes to finances and stuff, I don't know. Like, how much shit would I put up with to keep my job? I have put up with quite a lot of shit in the past because I kind of needed the income. You know, you have to put food on the table. And. So I don't know, I did ultimately change jobs and I did, even before I changed to doing this, I did kind of change to going freelance because I just could not put up with the shit anymore. And that was quite bad at first. Like I didn't have all that much work and times were a little bit lean. So yeah, I think I'm willing to put up with a bit, but not as much as some. I think you've hit the nail on the head there with uh, when times are lean. I was contracting some years ago, like 10 plus years ago, and uh, one of the roles I had came to an end, a natural end of the contract. And for some reason, I couldn't find another contract in my line of business at that time. And time was passing and I was eating into my savings. And bear in mind, I had two kids and a wife and a mortgage and a car to run. And, and I was eating into my savings because I couldn't find um, another role that suited me. And I always felt like there were certain roles I would never do. Like I would never work for a tobacco company, for example. Um, and there were other companies that I, I often thought I would never work for or, you know, government organizations that I wouldn't take contracts for. And I was pretty well sought after in that sphere of business that I was in. But it's possible that I would compromise once it got down to the wire and I really needed to pay the bills. And I think if if it had gone much longer than it did, thankfully I did I got off with like three rolls in in 48 hours and I could be choosy and pick the one that I was okay with. But if I if I'd left it too much longer, I might well have had to make a compromise in order to put food on the table. Um, and whether that compromise would have been working for a company that I feel is morally questionable and taking the money from the man in order to put, put food on the table and pay the bills, then so be it. Sometimes you have to make those compromises. I guess that's kind of a different question, though, isn't it? Uh, I think that's more like how much pain are you willing to inflict over your principles, right? 
Like when you have other people that depend on you, um, I think that it's easier to become a lot more bendy because now it's not just your inconvenience certain yourself, but you're putting other people through something. Yeah, that is actually a very good point. When you're a young single person, you can afford to be broke. But when you've got kids that have got to have food and school uniforms and all the rest of it and a, you know, a car to take them to school, I think... Yeah, you can't really afford it, can you? And you nearly found that out, Popey, but thankfully, I suppose, it all worked out for you, and then you ended up with a job working for a company that you actually like. Right, in an industry that I, I wanted to work for. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's difficult because I, I, I could see, like, coming down the line, the possibility that I'd have to make a compromise and I'd have to internally swallow it, that, I'm, well, I'm going to have to work for this company that I don't like working for or travel to a place I don't want to go. And, you know, you think about people who aren't that, aren't able to be that picky, who don't have the mobility or don't have the, um, the capability to make those choices. And like they have limited options. I, I was blessed with many options and some savings, but like most people are not in that position at all. I found it interesting that one of the keynotes at FOSDEM, was Bradley Kuhn and Karen Sandler talking about living life in freedom and not making those compromises and only using free software. And fairly at the start, Bradley pointed out that he has a non-free Android tablet that he uses in order to stay in touch with his family. And so he's made a compromise there. He's using non-free software so that he can stay in touch with a family member. And I think I think those are the kind of things, those family connections, whether it's putting food on the table or keeping in touch with a loved one who's you know, distant from you, you start making those compromises. Now, I realize there are some people who won't make those compromises and you probably would never see Stallman holding a, an Android tablet and using non-free software. But I think most most people probably would. Well, I was going to say, if you take it to the extreme, then you end up like Stallman and no one wants that. I don't know. He can, uh, he can certainly take the moral high ground uh, from anyone. You can't ever say that he has compromised on his principles over the years. You might be able to find some get out in there, but you know, really, honestly, he, um, he seems to stick by his principles. That is true. Hackers. That is true. Okay. So I've got a question for you. It's quite a long question and I get the feeling that Popey's answer is going to be quite short. So. It's all about conspiracy theories, right? And so while almost all conspiracy theories are just ridiculous, I'm thinking flat earth, that sort of thing, some of them have actually turned out to be true, like the Snowden revelations. We all kind of thought, or well, there was this conspiracy theory at least, that governments were collecting loads of data on us about all our internet communications and phone communications and everything. And that was dismissed by some skeptics as oh that's just ridiculous and then Snowden comes out with actual data proving that it's true and then the NSA actually acknowledged it and you know said yeah actually yeah we are doing that and that's why they've been chasing them ever since so that was a perfect example of a seemingly outlandish conspiracy theory that turned out to be true and so the question is is it worth paying a bit more attention to these seemingly outlandish ones now let me guess what your answer is going to be to this Popey. No, I, I, it's, no, that wasn't my answer. Uh, oh, that's what I was expecting. <laughs> just no, no, I, I don't know. I think there's a difference between something which is a conspiracy theory and something which is 
two people disagreeing or two groups of people disagreeing on a subject. And I'm not, I'm not convinced you can class government uh, spying as a conspiracy theory because that was a long held belief by a lot of people who were not crazy loons that most of the conspiracy theory uh, proponents seem to be. I wouldn't that like the infosec people who um, have been saying for many years that um, there's a tap on the internet connection that comes in on the west coast of the UK and that is funneled off to to GCHQ or wherever. That seems reasonable. That seems plausible. Not reasonable as in it's a good idea, but plausible that that is happening given where it is and the infrastructure that's there. That seems like a plausible thing. And I think some people would argue, no, they're probably not, but not looking into it too deeply. That's, that feels different from groups of passionate people arguing for or against flat earth or for or against chemtrails or, you know, for or against area 51 or whatever. I, I, I feel like the Snowden one actually wasn't a particularly good example because he confirmed that the thing that many people believed were happening was happening. I don't consider that a massive conspiracy theory. It's not, that's not moon landing style conspiracy theory to me. I guess there's a difference between something like flat earth or the moon landing where we can pretty much definitively using science say that that's not true or possible and it's, and it's kind of ridiculous. But when you look at something like, um, World Trade Center building seven, right? Where I don't think that you need to jump all the way to like the government blew up our own building to get to like, there's something weird about why that building came down and maybe someday there'll be some declassified information about it. Who knows? Uh, maybe it'll be like more of a Pearl Harbor kind of situation where it's like, well, you know, we, we knew it was going to happen and we figured that it was better to just let it happen because we needed to stir up the American people in order to, for the greater good or, you know, like things like that where it's like, yeah, that's, you know, conspiracy theory, but it's, it's not like insane stuff. It's stuff that's like governments sometimes do things that are unsavory in the interest of air quotes, the greater good. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I can't believe that you're agreeing with that. I thought you were so staunchly against any sort of 9-11 truth business. No, it's not, the, not really. Um, I, I'm, I'm against, not against. I'm, I find it incredulous some of the the theories that have gone around but the problem is conspiracy theories like you can lump them all in those two words conspiracy theories right but there are a myriad of different shades and there are people who believe the whole thing was orchestrated and some people believe you know only one building or some people believe you know all uh, one of the other buildings the pentagon you know uh, that was destroyed by the the plane that was orchestrated and it was an empty plane. You know, there are so many of these. I think it's very easy to just lump it all into those two words where some small portions of it might have some merit. And that's where conspiracy theorists get you is because they take one tiny bit of merit and then build layer upon layer on top of that to make their entire argument seem plausible um, that they can hook you in and make you think, yeah, 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 that whole thing is plausible because of like one tiny snippet of information that they're basing this whole thing upon. Well, the moon landings are a prime example of that because there is some photography from that that is clearly fake. 
And, you know, it that doesn't mean that there were no moon landings. I mean, there's clear evidence, the mirror and stuff. But, you know, what's more likely about these the few fake photos that are there? Is it more likely that they kind of photoshopped a few or the equivalent thereof to make them look better or whatever and made some mistakes to try and, you know, glamorize it and, you know, for the, the propaganda aspect? Is it more likely that they did that or they faked the whole thing? Well, faking a few photographs is pretty easy. Right. And, and I also have a problem with using the word fake about stuff, like the whole fake news and was the photo fake? Well, what's your definition of fake? Like, was it entirely constructed in a studio in, you know, in Hollywood? Or was the photo a composite of a number of photos that were touched up and cleaned up in order to give the best representation of the achievement that, that the country had made at that time? Which of those... Could, would you say is fake? Like, you know, you could, you could take a, a, a 3D render in, in modern times. You could take a 3D render of something and say, that's fake, right? But it's not. It's, it's a picture. It's a representation of something that was done in a different way than your, you were expecting it to have been made. It wasn't taken with a Hasselblad camera on the moon. It was generated with Blender on a PC, right? So I, I have a problem with the terminology people use, both Conspiracy theory is a blanket thing to cover everything from one tiny little misdemeanor all the way up to, you know, aliens did it. Um, and the word fake to just mean anything which is something I don't agree with. One thing that I don't like is the fact that conspiracy and theory are just lumped together. Because take something like 9-11, there is, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't agree that it was a conspiracy. Whether or not you believe that was a conspiracy among 19 young men armed with Stanley knives, or whether you believe it was a conspiracy of a shadowy New World Order, whatever, like all a conspiracy is, is two or more people getting together to do something nefarious. And the fact that theory is always lumped onto the end of it almost sort of discredits genuine conspiracies, things like Watergate or whatever. I'm glad we agree. Well, there is one fun fact about the moon landings, though. And that is that all of the moon landings took place under one presidency, the most trustworthy president of all time, Richard Nixon. What about the uh, Chinese one that landed on the moon? Most recently, that's not under Nixon. Got him. Checkmate, atheist. (laughs) 